Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. This is kind of a trigger warning episode. We're going to talk about suicide. My guest lost his brother to suicide and um, this podcast hopefully will be helpful for those of you that are thinking of suicide, those of you that have lost a close family member to suicide, and those of you that just want better tools to help people with um, working through serious mental health issues. Twitter is kind of an interesting place, listeners. Some of you are connected with me on Twitter, and um, I'm connected with a lot of people on Twitter that would be outside of my normal circle, and one of those is my guest, Christian Judd. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on this podcast, Richard. So on April 12th or April 10th of 2022, I'll just read a few tweets that Christian set up to set up this podcast, and maybe we'll link to these tweets in the show notes. Um, 12 years ago today, we lost my brother to suicide. I miss him every day of my life. He was such a kind, gentle, and giving individual, yet his untreated depression was too much to bear. If you or someone you know is suffering depression, please get help. It saves lives. And then, listeners, a great picture of you and your brother, Brian. And then um, later you followed up with three more tweets a day later. And I wanted to read each of those three tweets. I want to thank everyone for their kind words and support. It means a lot to me and my family. I also wanted to give you a peek behind the curtain for my motivation for posting this year. Um, while greatly appreciated is not for likes or responses, it's because more than 30,000 people saw the post. It's because even if one person saw it and, get, and gets the help they need, my brother didn't die in vain. And listeners, this is the third tweet here that um, that was so insightful. We need to normalize the mental health struggles that people face every day of their lives and provide support to them. We know we need to do what we can to let people know that they matter, their lives matter, and there's hope and help out there. Um, so I, you know, I don't know Christian. We visited a little bit before this podcast. He lives in Utah County, married, has three kids. He's a psychiatric nurse. Pri- pri- <laughs> Say that word for me, Christian. Practitioner. I get stumbled. Psychiatric and mental health nurse practitioner. So um, Christian has some um, expertise in this area, and maybe he'll get into that. He's also a diehard U of U fan. As I've been following on Twitter, he tweets a lot about the Utes, and I'm a Ute fan. And when I dialed into the Zoom call listener, you can't see this, but there's a uh, U of U football in the background, a U of U um, picture of the stadium, a U of U flag. So Christian puts his money where his mouth is, and it's not just Twitter. It's in his room. Um, but, you know, we don't really script these podcasts out, listeners. I just have a hunch that Christian will have insights since he knows this space personally with his brother, Brian, who's gone, and professionally that he will have insights that help you. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you, Christian. Yeah. Um, you know, before we were talking about kind of like my background and yeah. how that came to be. Um, and so I'll just start by saying that in 2010 was when I finished my initial degree in nursing at Salt Lake Community College. Um, and I actually had no intention, like I mentioned to you, to work in mental health care. Um, 
it was just not really on the radar for me. Um, but I just be, because of the recession and, and the lack of jobs available, I found myself in a position where I had a job offer and I took it. Um, and that was after eight months of searching for a job. It was so frustrating. And so I finally got into it and, um, you know, didn't know what to expect. Um, in nursing school, you complete one course in, in psychiatric nursing and that's it. That's all that's ever really mentioned of it. And so, you know, I've had a number of people that have said to me, oh, so you got into um, psych because of your brother. And the answer is no, I actually didn't. Interesting. It was never planned. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I continued through my career, transferred to the University of Utah, and um, I was planning on going into management, um, healthcare administration, but decided after getting into it a bit more that I didn't want to do that. And so um, I decided that I, I appreciate my autonomy more. And so um, decided that I wanted to um, pursue a doctorate of nursing practice, um, which is the degree that you receive at some institutions in order to sit for boards to become a nurse practitioner. And so I had a conversation with my director in my master's program and she said, you need to do psych. And I said, okay, I do. And she connected me with the program manager for the um, psychiatric mental health program at the University of Utah. And we spoke and this was my last chance to get out of psych because it's difficult work. You know, you're, you're getting into these intimate points of people's lives where they're extremely vulnerable and can be at their worst moments. And not only is that extremely tolling on them, but for the individual who's providing that essential care to them, it can be quite tolling on them as well. So, you know, you have this dichotomy between the two individuals where somebody's in a very difficult place in their life and ongoing for some, and then the person providing that care, you know, you can bear a lot of that burden on yourself. So I'm like, I time to get out. And after having a conversation with the program director for the um, psych mental health program, I just said, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, it's, it's led me this way. And so what I said during my interview with her was I fell into psychiatric care and then I fell in love with it. Wow. And that's just how it came to be. So I really do love the work that I do. I love um, seeing the patients that I see progress and improve their mental health with my help and with the help of their therapist. And so it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and so, I mean, like, like that's basically how I got to be here. It wasn't ever planned. It just kind of, it just kind of happened for me. I think, and um, I think you're around 40. It's one of the things I've learned as I've aged up is that um, we can do remarkable things. I'm assuming that your 25-year-old self had no idea your 40-year-old self would have 
a couple of undergrad yeah. associate degrees, a master's degree, yeah. and be doing this work and finding um, a, a real home here and are finding that sort of these talents that may have been not fully developed, but were there, got fully developed, and now you're blessing other people's lives. And I like these stories, Christian, because I think it gives yeah. perspective to younger people to know that don't quite know how their lives are going to work out to kind of hang in there. And I hope yeah, I, mo- I, motivate, <laughs> I motivate people by letting them know, like my close friends, most of my close friends know this, but I almost didn't graduate from high school. I never took it seriously. I just didn't have a lot of direction and I had to take a couple of classes, extra classes in order to graduate from high school. And just, I, I had a girlfriend that was geared for going to college. And I said, well, I guess I should go too if I want to, if I want to be somebody. And then, you know, just kind of took off from there, but I'm a late bloomer. I, I graduated high school and, 2000 as you mentioned i'm 40 and didn't finish completely until 2019 so it was a long road but i was steady and persistent and and uh you know got to where i am at today and so anybody that says that they can't do it that's just nonsense you can do anything that you set your mind to i love that part of your story and there were probably people further along your career path that were younger than you and Sometimes that, or people that just seem to have things figured out right at high school graduation, but I'd be, I think Christian and I would both say, be kind to yourselves. This is your own story to write. Do it on your terms. Don't look around and compare yourself and feel you're behind or not as smart or had to take high school classes over again. Cause you know what, you don't know what's in your future. If you just hang in there and I kind of like the term late bloomer Christian, um, there's no shame around that. I think. No. I think the bloom is already there. This well, the the origin of the bloom is always there. It's just takes some time for people to sort of figure that road out so they can bloom the way their potential is within them to bloom. And some of that's in exterior things that come into your life that sort of prevent all the things you want to do in your life from happening. Um, but keep talking. I'd love you to talk about you know Brian. Anything you want to talk yeah. about Brian to honor Brian? I. I thought yeah, the original I, um, tweet was just, I love that you put a picture of the two of you there. It humanized Brian for me. I, this wasn't just a tweet about, yeah. um, it, I saw you two together in that pic and I, and I recognized he's gone and I felt watching Twitter, I felt sadness, but I was glad you put a picture of the two of you together. That, that picture, um, you know, was actually from 2007 when, when my wife and I, we married and, we went on our honeymoon to um, San Francisco and when we came back, we had a little gathering and opened our gifts and that picture was taken on the, um, on the back porch, back patio of my in-laws. And I mean, I, I feel like, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. You can write 280 characters on Twitter and, you know, people connect to that, but, you know, you, you add a picture to a story and then it, um, like you mentioned, it just becomes more meaningful to say like this person here, they lived, they had a smile. They, they seemed like they were happy and then they were gone. 
And that was probably one of the most difficult things that I've still not completely reconciled with. The fact that he's, he's just, he's gone and he hasn't been able to see any of these things that I've, that I've done, that my family has continued to do, that this man had two young boys and a wife of his own that, you know, he's not a part of their lives anymore. And so that was, that's always been very difficult for me. And so that coupled with that, I am a, a psych, a psychiatric care expert now. And there've been a number of times, including in school, when I said to my peers in school that I often wonder if I knew then what I know now, would things be different? Oh, well, the fact questions. of the matter is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we can't change the past. We can only learn from it and, and you know, move on in the future and try and, and take those different experiences, both the bad and the good, to try and make ourselves better. And hopefully, if you have, if you have the ability, make lives of those around you better which is what I chose to do in my career. I love your line, Christian. We can't change the past, but we can learn from it and do better. I would guess anybody that's lost a family member to suicide, parents, a sibling, um, look back and say, what could I have done differently? Is it my fault? Define it by the last conversation, the last period of time versus the totality of the relationship. and. I would guess some of that's logical, but it can be pretty um, painful to live in that world. And I love what you just said. You can't change the past, but you can learn from it. And, um, and well, you, you it's do, a, you, probably a good segue to, you know, I guess, tell that story then. Um, just a precursor in February of 2010. We learned that my grandfather, my mom's stepdad, who was, I mean, he just, the, the, the grandpa, when I say grandpa, that's the man that I think of because he was the one that was always there, that was always um, just the, the kindest, most loving man that, um, you know, I, I have so many memories from my mom's mom and my mom's stepdad. And we learned that he had pancreatic cancer which is a death sentence. Your pancreas goes and you go, period. There's no way around it. And so, um, you know, I'm in nursing school and, uh, you know, I was struggling with some things at work and my brother was struggling with his relationship with his wife. And they had actually separated um, in the beginning of April. And so he was actually doing work. He was studying at Salt Lake Community College to um, become a master plumber. And, um, and he, um, you know, he was, he was excelling with what he was doing. And I remember, um, so he was working, he was doing work in Idaho. And, you know, he was up there for four and a half days a week and then at home on the weekends. And so that weekend of the 10th, um, I was having some issues at work and I had called him on the 9th, which was a Friday. 
and I told him, I said, you know, man, I've been, I've been having a rough week. Why don't we go and get together? And, um, you know, I've, I've got my, my pistol, my Glock, we can go and, and shoot some rounds because, you know, some that brothers do together. And, um, he's like, yeah, I don't really want to do that. He's like, well, why don't we go hit a bucket of balls? And I mean, this was April in Utah, which you never know what you're going to get, but this day it was windy and cold. And I'm like, you're nuts, dude. Like, why would you want to go and hit a bucket of balls? It's cold and windy outside. So we just talked and, you know, I, I divorced my ex-wife in 2006. And so we, I had gone for about four years with struggling to see my daughter and, and maintain that relationship with her. And he knew about that. And so he thought that's the direction that he was going. And what he said to me was, I just can't get around the idea that somebody else is going to be raising my kids. And I told him, I said, you're, no, you're their dad. He had two, he has two boys. You're their dad. And they know that. And you will always be their dad. I said, look at Madison, my daughter. She knows who her dad is. We're still close. We still see each other. You're still going to see them. You're still going to be part of their lives, regardless of what happens with you and, and your wife. And, um, you know, he, he just acknowledged that and, but almost half-heartedly, like he had it in his mind that, that he just didn't know what was going to happen, which, you know, when you're in that position, you don't. And so he said, well, I think I'm still going to go hit a bucket of balls. I hope I didn't ruin it for you though. I'm like, no, you're fine. And so April 10th, I had a project that I was working on with one of my peers and we were having to shoot this video showing how to um, do a procedure um, for nursing. And what we chose was to show how to change a central line dressing. Um, and, you know, it's a complex procedure. It's a sterile procedure. And we were just like, we'll just show how to do this. And so we went to the clinic that I was working at. Um, it was after hours, but I had a key and permission to use it. And so we went and we were shooting this video. And suddenly my phone started just ringing over and over again while we're in the middle of this. And I said to my partner, um, Jake, I said, hey, will you just finish this up really quick? I see what this is on my phone. And so I went and I looked and it was my dad and that was not like him. He's not the type of guy to just keep calling and calling and calling. And so I called him back and he answered the phone and he said, um, he said to me, he said, he's gone. Like, what do you mean he's gone? And he said, um, your brother, he's gone. I said, what brother? What are you talking about? When he first said he's gone, Remember, I mentioned that my, that my grandpa had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So initially, I'm thinking he's talking about grandpa. And he said that Brian was gone and 
my like everything just went blank for me. My mind just shut off and I just didn't even understand what was happening. And then it turned to just anger and and I took my phone and I just threw it against the wall and it broke into I don't even know how many pieces because this kid and I, we were so close. You know, my brothers and I, we were all close in age. But my younger brother and I, we were we were practically best friends growing up. We were always running around together, getting into mischief, things like that. And so I I I mean it was just immediately I, I didn't even know what to do or think. And and so Jake came out to check on me and and by then I was just in tears. And he asked what was wrong. I told him that my brother died. And at that moment, I didn't even know what happened because like I said, I just threw my phone because dad told me that my brother was dead and I just didn't want to hear anything more. And so um, he, Jake then called my wife and told her. And so she came to the clinic we were living in the university student apartments at the time. And the clinic that I was at was at the university of Utah hospital. So it was just a matter of minutes before she got there. And so, um, she came and got me and, and, um, she's the one that called and we found out that he had died by suicide. The hardest thing for me then was knowing that I was likely the last person in my family to talk to my brother. Mm. And like the guilt that I felt for, you know, maybe I should have gone and hit some golf balls with him. Maybe that would have changed things. Maybe if I would have stayed on the phone with him for a little bit longer, maybe I should have gone to his house. Maybe I should have, done something more but really at the time and of course like this story has replayed again and again and again in my head and like what did I miss what was what was something that I could have seen something I could have done and I mean it wasn't anything extraordinary that anybody would feel during a loss or you know feeling like my life is changing. I don't like the way that it's going. So I'm not feeling, you know, I'm not feeling like things are going my way. And to be honest with you, one of the most interesting things when you look at um, diagnosing major depression is what we call um, anhedonia, which is the inability to experience pleasure or not doing things that you normally do that you enjoy. Say that word again, Christian, for our listeners. So anhedonia. So everybody knows about hedonic acts and stuff, which is often associated yeah. with, you know, indulging in, in your whatever pleasures in life. Um, but that's, that's the word for it is anhedonia. And so he's talking about wanting to go and hit a bucket of balls, which is, like he enjoyed golfing. So he's going to do something that he enjoys. So it wouldn't even be a red flag, you know? 
And so, um, yeah, we, we all came together then at my parents' house and, and we were, um, I guess, no, initially we, we actually drove to my brother's house. Um, it was, he had bought a house. It was just down the road from my parents' house in Kearns. And, um, we drove to his house and, and they were the, 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 um, the van for the coroner was there and, you know, he was, his body was already in the back of the, of the coroner's um, van. And so, you know, I didn't see anything of that, which looking back, I'm glad that I didn't. Um, And then we drove to my parents' house where we all converged with my brother, my older brother and his wife and um, myself and my wife and my parents and, and tried to just figure out what was going on. What do we do? You know, anytime you have an unexpected death, I mean, a death alone in, in a family, you, you have so many things that you have to do at that point, but where it's just sudden, something sudden like this, where you have no idea what you're doing and, you know, dealing with, with the grief from the loss and all the questions that are going through your mind, like why would, why would somebody do this? And I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I would never wish on somebody to experience, to lose somebody that they're extremely close with to suicide. And just for brevity's sake, the one thing that I want people to understand is you think you may think that there are no, there's nobody out there that really cares. There's nobody out there that would even, it would make a difference if you were to, um, if you were to leave this earth. When we had the, um, the viewing for my brother, um, afterward, you know, it's just the days and you have people that are coming in saying hello and you know, you're in this, um, this funeral, um, home and, and, um, we were told afterward that the crowd of people was wrapped around the building for hours. Wow. And so you can only imagine, you know, hundreds of people came to this and, that's how many people were impacted by his life and his subsequent death. Um, and so that's why I said that in that one tweet that you mentioned, you do matter. Your life matters. There are people that care about you. Even if you don't see it, there are people that do, you know, feel that your life matters, that you're important to them. And so you know, that's the, that's the one thing that is so difficult is when you're in this state of mind, you know, that I've since, you know, learned more about and understood, it's difficult to see from one moment to the next, from one day to the next, let alone, you know, a week, a month into the future, because you're just, you're in such a dark place that it, it your mind becomes clouded by by this extraordinarily depressive state of mind 
that you just can't you can't see anything beyond that and you're 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 experiencing that that anhedonia where you just there's nothing that's that's pleasurable to you and so it's really it's really a hard thing um you know for for myself to be able to reconcile and like i said i haven't completely but you know i i do my work that i do now and and try and um help those that are actually here that i can and so that that brings a lot of a lot of satisfaction to me that you know if he's able to see what i'm doing now that i think that he would be proud of it it's really a good segment christian thanks for telling us a little bit about the circumstances of his passing but they didn't respectful way your own interaction with him the reality that you may have been the last family member that spoke with him I've always wondered about the family members when someone dies by suicide, that last conversation where mm-hmm. you're the one that had the last conversation or everybody probably replays that last conversation interaction, even if they're not a close family member they had with someone who died by suicide and probably overanalyzes that of what could I have done differently or what could I have seen that I wasn't seeing. And, and you've, I like the vocabulary that I've replayed that in my mind over and over again. And I think you've come to the conclusion that, you know, the totality of relationship with your brother, Brian, is what defines it. And this was not about your, not about your lack of interaction with him or something you could have done, but about his, you know, state of mind and the the serious mental health issues that he was in. And it was probably not very well seen by those around him, even though they were intending good people. I think both of us want to take guilt away. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, Because I've just heard so many stories. There's so many people who are just racked with survivor's guilt or whatever the right vocabulary is of someone that they love, that they've lost a suicide. And they think, you know, they obviously would think, what could I have done differently? Versus sort of saying this is the real, and it takes a while. And I think you're honest with some of the vocabulary used. This isn't quite, I'm not quite to the finish line in this, even though it's 12 years. And I do this professionally. I'm still not quite at the finish line. And I think that's really honest. That probably helps other people realize that even though it's been a long time since I've lost a family member, it's okay not to be at the finish line on this. And maybe I'll never quite get to the finish line and reconcile something like losing a family member to suicide. What's interesting about that is um, if you look at the statistics, you know, we say that, well, you know, he should have probably been seeking professional help. He probably should have been, you know, having somebody watching him clo- more closely. And I mean, that's just not the case. I mean, everything that that I look back on, like, sure, he was sad. Sure, he was upset. But, um, you know, a lot of that can be internalized. And the the one of the things that is most difficult is when you're interviewing somebody for making recommendations for treatment of mental health problems you're relying heavily on that interview on on personal reports and so the only thing that i have to hold on to is that yeah well he was still doing things that he enjoyed 
he was still wanting to go play golf, which on a cold April day, <laughs> on a cold April day, like the, the conditions that most golfers would not really want to get into, to be able to, I mean, it was windy. It was cold, not conditions for golf. And he was still planning on to going out and hitting a bucket of balls. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. You know, he, that's, that's dedication. Somebody that's wanting to do something that they really enjoy. And, and, you know, the, by the numbers from the um, national Alliance on mental illness, 46% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosed mental health condition. On the other hand, um, 90% of people have experienced symptoms of mental health conditions, which means that 10% of people don't. So you have, you have one in 10 people who die by suicide who didn't necessarily have any significant mental health problems that were recognized by anybody. And so, you know, maybe, you know, obviously he was sad, but, you know, I, I, I don't know that he would have been diagnosed with a mental health problem. And so that's where it gets kind of, you know, you can, you can try and dissect it every, every which way that you want, but you know, what we need to focus on is the 46% that have um, mental health conditions that die by suicide. You know, those people that, you know, have these diagnosed conditions that die by suicide and you know, what, what, what do we, what can we do to bring that number closer to zero? Um, that's where, that's where I think that we need to focus these efforts. And so one of the things that um, I mentioned as well is just being more mindful of those around you. You know, if, if you see somebody that's having struggles with you know, depression, like recognizing the key features of somebody who is having a mental health problem. So, you know, feeling sad or withdrawn for um, days or weeks at a, at a time, people who are engaging in self-harm behaviors or self-mutilation, as we call it, um, people who are having risk-taking behaviors. Um, and I don't mean the people who are extremists where they, you know, they're, they're those danger seekers where, you know, they, they like extreme sports and things like that. I mean, risk-taking behaviors that, that they're just carefree about, about the things that they're doing. Like, um, you know, like they may be going on hikes and just not being mindful or carefree about, you know, stepping onto the ledge, so to speak, both metaphorically and literally, um, you know, if you see somebody that they're, they're complaining about, um, significant anxieties and such that can also be a precursor to, um, extreme changes in mood, um, sudden weight loss or weight gain, um, people that are, um, having, you know, 
disturbing issues with their mood or um, sleep habits, things like that can really make a difference in, you know, just saying, hey, you know, I noticed you, you say that you haven't been sleeping well for days. You keep saying, oh, I'm only sleeping in a, a couple hours at a time. You know, what's going on there? And, you know, just make a recommendation. You know, you might want to go talk to a doctor about that. You know, you might have something bigger going on. Just, you know, these, these simple things that you can recognize in people and just check in, just ask, ask questions. You know, if nothing else, at least you're, you're there and you're mindful and they have somebody that they know that cares about them. Um, I think that just those simple things can make a world of difference. Um, good insights. Talk to somebody who um, knows they're suicidal, maybe even has a plan, but no one has any idea around them. They are working on their mental health and they have not, they don't quite know how to open up. They kind of want to open up to somebody, um, but they've sort of, people around them just think they're an altogether got it person that's, you know, yeah running on all cylinders and no one would even suspect there's a serious mental health issue or someone is suicidal. And on one hand, they got a plan, but on the other hand, they actually want to live and they want to learn how to, they want to be vulnerable and open up. Talk to that person um, about the need and just how to do that if they've never done that before. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking to, have somebody share intimate details about their life, about their personal thoughts, their personal feelings. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't really like to open up about that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do with the stigma that we carry in society with mental health. And um, one of the struggles that I have is uh, oftentimes I have patients come into me and, and they'll say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be on meds. And that's, that's where it's the association is if somebody's on meds. If you say, oh, well, they're on meds. You will almost always think that they're on some medication to treat a mental illness. Not I'm, I'm taking something for blood pressure problems. I take lisinopril because I have high blood pressure or I'm taking a medication for my diabetes. I take, take metformin twice a day because I have diabetes. That's not on meds. And there's on no meds. shame around that. <laughs> exactly. And so I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to be on meds. But that's, that's, what's, that's what I just, it's so hard to combat is that stigma that's so closely associated with mental health. Mental illness, it's an illness. When you have an illness, you get treatment for it. I mean, you would never, you would never chastise somebody for like those examples. If you have high blood pressure, nobody's going to be like, oh, that person over there, they're on meds. Look at them. They have high blood pressure. Now they're taking meds. That would just never happen. That's ludicrous. And so, just, I think that it helps when you have more um, celebrities and athletes that are speaking out and saying, 
you know, I had mental health problems and I went and saw treatment and now I take medication for it and things are better for me. You know, you have people um, locally, you have college athletes, both at BYU and the University of Utah, who are talking about getting mental health care for them. Yeah, I was struggling with my depression. Yeah, I was struggling with my anxiety and it was causing problems for me. That's the biggest thing that we look for when making a decision about whether or not to prescribe medication is functional impairment. If your, if your life function is impaired to the point where you cannot um, do the things that you need to during the day, then intervention is necessary. And that doesn't necessarily mean medication. It could just mean that you need to go and see a therapist. You need to see a counselor to go and, and talk to about these things. And then you can work with your therapist initially and they usually can recognize if they would, would recommend, you know, medication for you, but even at the most basic, basic level, sure. The vast majority of, of, uh, psychiatric nurse, nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, um, psych certified PAs in, in the nation, it's, you know, months out in order to get in, to get treatment for them. But the fact is that most mental health treatment, most mental health care begins with your primary care physician. They can prescribe and begin, um, you know, treatment for anxiety, treatment for depression, treatment for sleep, which sleep is, is one of the biggest things that people will discount is not being necessary because yeah, I can sleep with two hours and everything's fine. Not for long-term. So if you're going for days at a time without sleep, then in all likelihood, it will eventually affect your mood and you can start to have issues with your depression, with, with depression. And so any of these problems can begin with your primary care provider. And so if you're having those types of problems, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. It's, it's, it can begin in that, in, in that case with your primary care provider, and then they can make a recommendation for you to seek uh, specialized care through a psychiatrist, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, a psych certified PA, but, you know, get the help that you need regardless. I love that, um, Christian, because I love the idea that sometimes people don't know. I love a se- multiple things in that section about normalizing meds, the way we normalize it for health, for physical health things. And for men, sometimes men are sort of, I can solve oh, yeah. this all on my own, but for men, even men take meds for high blood pressure and, and high cholesterol and aches and pains. And so normalizing that for health care is a good thing. I like um, you turning to the primary care because I think some people don't know where to turn. And I think turning to your primary care and the way you re- reminded us that our primary care doc can be the gateway for what you need in this space and have the courage to turn to somebody and open up to your primary doc. How do you feel That's about cool. the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, some of these lines? So um, give us your thoughts on those. And is there one favorite you'd recommend for listeners realizing this podcast? The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a fantastic resource. Um, 
for, you know, seeking mental health treatment. If you are having thoughts of suicide, if you're having thoughts of ending your life, even if you're just having thoughts of, of uh, not wanting to be here anymore, you know, you, you have this, this ongoing, you know, idea that, well, I just probably just don't need to, to be here. And so, you know, even, even with that, um, so that's a, that's a great resource to have. The other, um, the other resource that I think that is excellent here locally in Utah is the uni crisis line, yeah. which is now Huntsman mental health Institute. And that number is 801-587-3000. Um, you know, luckily they didn't change it when it changed from, uh, the names uni to, uh, Huntsman mental health Institute. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are excellent, um, resources for those who are, you know, if, if you are struggling with significant depression, um, thoughts of suicide, um, thoughts of wanting to die, give them a call and they can, you know, at minimum, you'll have somebody to talk to somebody that will listen, somebody that you can anonymously have a conversation with, you know, like, you mentioned uh, it's difficult to be able to open up to somebody because you don't want to be judged or you don't want to um, you don't want to have that conversation because it's too close to home. I don't want, you know, my neighbor, my friend, my partner, my, you know, whoever knowing that I'm struggling with these things, you can make an anonymous call and, you know, find out ways to get connected and whether or not, you actually do need to get connected. I mean, if you're calling hotline like that, in all likelihood you do, but you know, hearing it from somebody else instead of just some talking head on a podcast, you know, it, it could improve the the likelihood that you actually do seek mental health treatment and just throw away the stigma. Um, you know, you have a podcast that is heavily um geared toward the lgbtq community and so of course i can't go on without mentioning um one of my favorite resources and that's the trevor project good um the the you can find them online but the uh and and it's a it's an excellent way Um, But they do have a phone number that you can call them directly, 212-695-8650. One thing that uh, is kind of striking is that, um, you know, you look at the national suicide rates and they just continue to increase, except for between 2019 and 2020. Interestingly, According to the CDC, the suicide rates dropped about 30%, despite there being an increase in mental health needs. I don't know that they've made a full um, assessment as to why that is. Um, I don't know if, I don't, I mean, I, I can't speak to it because I haven't been able to find um, where the research has gone with that, but you know, generally speaking, the, the suicide rates nationally have continued to increase over the years. 
Utah actually ranks ninth nationally with suicide um, per capita. Um, when we talk about the LGBTQ community, um, I think that it's important to note that um, individuals who identify in that community have an even greater likelihood of attempting suicide. Um, people in that community have a greater likelihood of experiencing significant depression. You know, and that's due to rejection, lack of support, lack of belonging, things of that nature. I mean, we're human. Humans are generally the type, are, are, are generally drawn to other people, drawn to a community, um, whether or not that is, you know, a physical community that is out in the real world or an online community, people look for that. And so it can be difficult, particularly if you're not feeling connected to the um, community at large. And, you know, it, it, it definitely increases the likelihood that you will, you will experience a significant mental health problem. Um, in 2022, the Trevor Project conducted a national survey on LGBTQ youth. And strikingly, they found that about 50% of youth considered suicide. I mean, that's a, that's a not insignificant portion of the population. Um, and even more devastating is that about 18% of those surveyed had attempted suicide. So one in five wow. individuals about had attempted suicide. And that's just in youth, you know, ages 12 to 17. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just devastating that, that, uh, that community has numbers like that. And what, what really kind of bothers me the most is that, there's an even greater uh, likelihood for individuals who are in the trans and non-binary community. Um, and, you know, where, where, what, what does that mean for us? You know, what, what does that mean for us as a society that, you know, the, they're your friends, your neighbors, they're, you know, just the kid down the street and, you know, just because of a something that they're that they're embracing, or maybe even not because of fear, but something that they identify as that they are having thoughts of suicide or cho choosing to attempt suicide because it's just not worth it to them. And so that's where you know it comes into my strong beliefs that we just like find find somebody out there that that um hasn't had a problem with mental health at some point in their life i mean the fact is that at at any point any one of us can experience mental health problems you know you experience losses all the time you experience um significant things in your life all the time that can cause you know, a great deal of anxiety. And so, you know, they, they 
find that, you know, one in five people will experience a significant mental health problem at some time in their life. You know, one in five of us. So add that, that just general idea across the board to having to navigate something that is not looked upon well in general in society. And, and that's something that, you know, we definitely need to address. It's killing our youth. And, you know, they're, the people's lives are, are so much more important than, than uh, being right about something because you think that you know more than them, that you can dictate their own life experiences, their own, um, their own direction. You know, like it, it's just ludicrous. It's a really good segment. I'm glad you brought up our LGBTQ friends and you see that I'm sure firsthand with your professional work. And I'm going to just read the numbers that we've kind of mentioned here and I'll put them in the show notes. The uni huntsman line that Christian mentioned is 801-587-3000. That's for Utahns. The national suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Um, the Trevor Project line that Christian mentioned is 212-695-8650. Another thing I'll put in the show notes is David Archuleta's, um, um, what he did at Love Loud in Utah the last month. He spoke his, about his own journey being queer, and then he sang a couple songs that had a big theme about, if I could remember the same names of the songs, I'd, but a lot of them are You Belong and you're needed. And uh, the two songs he chose to sing, I listened to his segment twice on my morning walk, and um, really remarkable songs and lyrics and his own experience about creating belonging. And so if we're an ally, or one of the greatest gifts we can give to our LGBTQ friends is a feeling they belong, and they're needed, and we're better off with them. Um, And that's something that from a society standpoint, we can do a better job of and helping people to understand this part about them that, as David Archuleta has been pretty honest, has been something that's been troubling to him as he's reconciled. He's in this love loud thing he just talked about. He's at peace with who he is, all of who he is, and he loves all of who he is. And I recognize the mental health work he's done to get to that point. Um, And it's a good place to be where we all love everything about how we're created. And even though society sometimes sends us mixed messages about um, what, who we are and if that's okay, I think that I'm brave people like David Archuleta stepping forward as many as well as many others create hope for younger people that are earlier on this journey. But the things you said are very helpful, Christian, um, for those that are LGBTQ. And so we're kind of at the end of the podcast. Any just give us another segment or another th- closing thoughts, Christian. <laughs> Anything else that comes to your mind? Um, I don't know. It's been kind of different for me because um, I'm sure that you know that I have my own podcast. Oh, tell our uh, listeners about that. <laughs> a shameless plug. Good. So I, I record a podcast with my partner um, in crime, Andrew McCullough. Um, we call it Social Hall Sports. It's very youth centered um we are both 
big fans of the University of Utah, um, both graduates from the University of Utah. Um, Andrew actually received his um, judicial degree, judicial doctorate from Brigham Young University. So he switched sides for that one, but he's still University of Utah through and through. Um, and so we, we talk about sports and we have some segments on there that we do that's just fun and shenanigans. Um, we talk about food, culture, um, things of that nature. And so this is definitely a different feel than, than yeah. what I'm used to. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun though. I mean, um, I don't know if fun is the word, but, um, enjoyable to be able to sit down with you and, and talk about these things that are, you know, close to me and near and dear to my heart. Um, because I think that, you know, you, you, you see things from other people that they experience and you, you hear stories from other people, like you mentioned David Archuleta, um, and the love loud with Dan Reynolds. Um, my family has been supporting love loud since its inception. I was there in, in, uh, at UVU in 2017 when they had the initial love loud fest and then we were at rice stadium in 2018 and then again in 2019 we were at um, usana amphitheater um and so it's something that we definitely support you know we we love to you know help get the word out and support those who are in need of support you know i've always been the one to root for the underdog having been almost an underdog myself, you know, I mentioned that I almost didn't graduate from high school. So, you know, you, you find people that actually remember me from high school and say, you know, this guy became a doctor of nursing practice and Christian Judd, <laughs> you know, I mean, you just never know. I mean, it's like I said, you, you are capable. Everybody's capable. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be the richest person on planet earth, that you're going to be able to be an Elon Musk and buy Twitter for $34 billion that you're going to be able to, um, you know, be the lead singer of a international band like Dan Reynolds or, or, uh, you know, do the things that, um, David Archuleta has done, but, you know, just little things that's that's what's important that you can accomplish things in your life it doesn't have to be great but find the things that you love find the things that you're passionate about you know i i i love what i do with my work but you know the the podcast that i do is just kind of a side project i don't make any money from it it's just a passion project it's something that i enjoy i dabble in things um you know i i learned to cook from a a young age and you know i often will post pictures of my of my food that i cook on on twitter on tonight's menu is how i title it and just sharing that with people you know it's it it's what makes me happy i like i like sharing the joys of life and and um building people up you know it's just there's too much hate and there's too much negativity in the world that you just need more people to 
bring joy to you and spread the spread love, you know, love loud as Dan Reynolds coined, regardless of what your, your own personal beliefs are, what your own personal places in life, just love. I mean, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard to just love one another as the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints primary song says. So I just, I, it's what I, it's what I love for and, and try and emulate as much as I can in my life. It's just a terrific last segment. Christian, I'm so glad I just acted on my impression to reach out to you and have you on the podcast. I, I thought you'd do a good job and you did just a terrific job and you have a beautiful, unique life story that gives hope for others that they're not sure how their life's going to turn out and they're in high school or early college and there's a lot of fog ahead of them. And and I love that you're kind of multidimensional. You're not just a one-dimensional guy. And I think you've learned to develop the different talents. And I love that you've got this podcast. Listeners will link to Christian's podcast. I love professionally what you're doing. I love you way you honor your brother, Brian. Um, and I love the way you see everybody as members of the same human family and want to do things to bring us together and support and love each other. And I think that's really needed right now, listeners. And so Christian's doing that in real life. And I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for all the good work you're doing. Absolute pleasure being here. Thank you, Richard. So this is Christian Judd, and we'll link to his Twitter profile also in the podcast description. And Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.